Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Gregor McGregor, a bloke who had uh, some of the most ridiculous and outlandish adventures uh, you've ever heard in uh, in 19th century Latin America. I found it, I actually found out about this bloke through a listener. A listener again, Casper uh, Legras. Legras. I don't know how to say it with a name like that. You're asking for trouble sending in emails to me. I'm never going to get it right. Casper Legras. Uh, who uh, sent through an email um, with a suggestion to have a look into uh, into Old McGregor as, as a topic for an episode. And I'll tell you what, we've got a two-parter on our hand because there is so much meat on these bones. This, his story is absolutely ridiculous. I can't believe I'd never heard of this bloke. Um, and you're not going to believe it either once you uh, once you figure out what this once you you know find out what this bloke got up to. So McGregor, he was um, he was a British soldier, uh, and uh, he sort of became obsessed with like status status and position and uh, you know prestige and basically he looked like a big important knob. And uh, and and he used this status and prestige and this sort of illusion of uh, you know grandeur that he had like this uh, to trick people into believing all sorts of ridiculous stuff. He uh, his adventures took him all all across the Atlantic, all around the world, and uh, through he fought in revolutionary wars in Latin America. He, I mean, th- while he was doing this, he managed to fool and take advantage of everyone he met. He turned all these small successes that he had here and there into this huge reputation for for military brilliance and an over accomplishment. Um, as I say, he fought for he fought he fought for Venezuelan independence. He invented fake chivalric orders. He planned an invasion of Florida, and on three separate occasions, he captured towns uh, that belonged to the Spanish before escaping. Just before the the Spanish came back and then recaptured them, he left them defenceless. Uh, so yeah, he absolutely diddled sort of everyone with all of his tricks. Uh, everyone thought he was this high-ranking aristocratic strategic heavyweight. Uh, but the biggest diddle of all, the biggest diddle of all, actually came after his days as a soldier. Robin, we're, we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, this week, we're going to set the stage, have a chat about what this bloke got to uh, got up to as, as a soldier, and uh, some of the adventures and, and misadventures he had uh, because they're absolutely wild, absolutely wild. He's at the first half of his career. His career. So let's get to it. So. All the way back, and all the way back now to 1786, Christmas Eve, 24th of December, in fact, when Gregor McGregor was born in Stirlingshire in Scotland. Now, I live about an hour away from where he was born, on uh, near Loch Catron, and a beautiful part of the world it is. Uh, he's born into a, a relatively well-heeled Catholic family uh, that's part of Clan Gregor or, or Clan McGregor. Um, he's actually a descendant of Rob Roy, who you may have heard of, a Scottish outlaw, and uh, Later in life, he claims to be the descendant of people involved in the Darien Scheme. Uh, people who listen to episode number 50 will know all about the Darien Scheme, Scotland's ill-fated attempt to colonise the uh, colonise Central America. Anyway, McGregor's dad dies when he's just a kid. He's only eight years old, and uh, he's raised by his mum along, alongside two sisters. Now, he follows in the footsteps of his dad, not that, in that he dies, but in that he joins the, he joins the army, joins the military uh, at the age of 16 in, in 1803. So both his dad and his granddad were uh, were part of the uh, part of the British military. And uh, specifically, uh, our mate McGregor, he joins the army. His family paid for a commission for him, uh, giving him the rank of ensign in a company called the 57th Regiment of Foot. And I did some reading about this, about the purchasing commissions and it's actually very very interesting to discover that back in the day before seven before 1871 british military ranks were purchased rather than earned ranks all up to colonel were actually bought and sold by officers in the british army which ensured that basically ensured only rich people were in charge of troops and this had a number of sort of knock-on effects that the british army were actively seeking it it meant that the officers were you know likely happy with the status quo they, they benefited from things being the way they are with the amount of money they had and therefore they wouldn't rise up in rebellion and, and bring their troops with them um 
also did stuff like prevented looting and, and you know, profiteering from war, uh, you know, uh, with these officers, again, being presumably well cared for by the fact that they're, they're, they're very wealthy. On top of this, weirdly, and I probably won't surprise you to learn this, on top of this, uh, those who actually did earn their ranks over, you know, years and years of, of actual hard work were looked down on by the snooty rich kids who had just bought their way in. Anyway, the whole purchase of commissions actually ended in 1871 after the Franco-Prussian War because the Prussian army absolutely wiped the floor with the French. I, I'd love to cover that, the Battle of Sedan, that sort of stuff. Absolutely fascinating because um, it, it created the modern state of Germany, the Franco- Franco-Prussian War, and the, you know, Otto von Bismarck and Napoleon III and all that. Anyway, um, uh, and the Prussian army, they were fighting with this highly trained uh, group of professional soldiers basically like career soldiers people are actually you know trying to do what they're doing very well uh, you know rather than the old British system of just having sort of rich knobs in charge and as a result the British abol- they saw how effective the, the Prussian army was and they abolished uh, purchasing commissions as, as, as a result of uh, you know how, how this war ended up even though they weren't involved not directly anyway, anyway all this is beside, you know, it's beside the point it's by the by here because uh, back in 1803 McGregor's family they bought him a commission and he's off to fight Napoleon uh, heading first to the south of England and then to Guernsey and then eventually Gibraltar so out on the air on the Iberian Peninsula down at, you know, at the mouth of the Mediterranean there. Um, he manages a few more pr- promotions during his time there. He ends up as a captain. Uh, this wasn't cheap either, but he found a new source of income, which was very useful for him in the meantime here. In 1804, he met a woman named Maria Bowater, who was the daughter of an admiral and related to two generals. Now, I ain't saying he a gold digger, but uh, Maria is from a, a very, very wealthy family indeed. And when they get married in, in 1805, McGregor snags himself a stonking great big fat dowry. So he's doing all right for himself as the captain of the 57th foot, rich wife next to him, scrapping with Napoleon down there in Spain and Portugal, having a good time. But uh, by all accounts, he did a pretty middling job. He didn't seem to be a particularly remarkable soldier, officer, or anything else like that. He did a did a reasonable job, you know, never really overperformed or underperformed, just a just a bog standard officer there. But he ends up quitting the British Army uh, in uh, in eighteen ten after a big bust up with one of his uh, superior officers. He, he finally uh, hangs up the boots on the twenty fourth of May eighteen ten, and this date is important, right? And I'll tell you why. The 57th Regiment of Foot, it made it a real name for itself. So obviously he's a member of this. He's one of the captains in the 57th Regiment of Foot. And it made a real name for them. They made a real name for themselves at the Battle of Albura, right, fighting against the Spanish there during these Napoleonic Wars. And as a result, the 57th Regiment, they got the nickname the Diehards because they refused to surrender to the French uh, when they were, you know, hopelessly outnumbered, heavily surrounded, having a terrible time. But they, they refused to surrender and they helped to carry the day for the British and their allies, even though it was a pretty indecisive victory there for the for the British and the allies there. But still, the 57th Regiment of Foot were instrumental in doing this. Now, McGregor, as a member of the 57th, he made good use of the regiment's reputation. Of course, he's trying to big it up in the future like this, make himself sound like a, you know, Big, a big hero here, despite the fact that the Battle of El Buera took place on the 16th of May in 1811, just shy of a year after he'd left the army. So this should give you an idea of what this bloke is all about as a con man here, because the fact that he wasn't there at the battle didn't stop him from making a big deal about, you know, being part of the 57th, being one of the diehards, so as to impress people, as, we, as, we'll, uh, as we'll find out. So sort of setting the stage very neatly there for what McGregor was all about. Anyway, just in case... Just in case you were thinking that uh, McGregor was a, a very subtle man, but you know I'm, I'm sort of painting this picture of this of this delicate con man here. That's not the case. Let me let me, you know, he's not he's not gently ensnaring people in tangled but believable untruths here. Let, let me put your, your your mind at rest. He is uh, not a very subtle bloke at all because this guy was just a huge big gutsy liar. He really was. Uh, after retiring in 1810, he moved back to Scotland. He set up shop in Edinburgh, where he referred to himself as a colonel, even though he was just a captain. Never mind, you know, he'd risen any, he hadn't risen any higher than a captain. Don't worry about that. I mean, who checks these things, right? He goes around calling himself a colonel, and it doesn't stop there. He wore the insignia of a Portuguese chivalric order that he'd never been given. 
And he bought himself a big fancy carriage and he'd cruise around Edinburgh in this carriage. Big, colourful carriage it was, doing bloody sick doughies and burnouts all over the place. Sick, mate, sick. Anyway, um, he was clearly, he was absolutely obsessed with prestige and status, as I said. During his time in the military, it had been very obvious. But now that he's out, all he seems to care about is being admired and being adulated by people. Now, interestingly... No one in Edinburgh is all that impressed with him. Obviously, you know, the, Scot take, the Scots aren't so easily taken. It takes a lot to impress them, of course. And uh, he actually gets so sick of, of, of his failure to break into the high society of Edinburgh that he packs his bags and he, he takes his wife down to London. Down in 1811, he moves down to London, where, again, he's telling the same tall stories about all his... Oh, actually, no, he's not telling the same stories. That's the thing. He actually doubles down. So he's still, you know, lying, talking out his ass about his rank and his prestige and all that sort of stuff. But now he's calling himself Sir, um, Sir Gregor McGregor, right? So now he's a knight all of a sudden and also a baronet. So he's a proper me member of the minor nobility here. And on top of this, he even starts to talk, him talk about himself as though he's the chief of Clan McGregor, if you'll believe it. So he's really bigging himself up. And unlike in Edinburgh, people in London bloody lap this up. They can't get enough of it. So he starts moving in all the circles of high society, hanging out with rich knobs of all kind, and this is exactly how he likes it. It's not too difficult to imagine what kind of a bloke he was like. You know, he's 24 or 25, he's cashed up, he's full of himself. And I think, you know, we all know a Gregor McGregor in our personal lives, really. We all know a Gregor McGregor or two in, in, in IRL, don't we? Anyway... Things take a turn for the worse for poor old McGregor here in December 1811. You know, he's, he's, he's doing all the rounds, the social rounds of London, and then all of a sudden, things come crashing down when his wife, Maria, dies. Now, obviously, he's pretty cut up about this, but, but perhaps not for the reasons you imagine. He's obviously devastated to have lost all the money and the, the connections that, he's, uh, you know, that his wife provided him for. I mean, yeah, what's that? He's, oh, Maria herself? No. <laughs> I mean, you can always get a new wife, can't you? But all that money, whew, irreplaceable. Anyway, it, uh, it actually turns out that, no, you, you can't always get a new wife because McGregor, he he, he starts to toy with the idea of, you know, he, he basically starts to hunt down a new heiress that he can marry and, uh, you know, and, and start digging for that gold once again, but realised very quickly that this was damaging his uh, his reputation, his standing, you know, as a respectable and wealthy gentleman. So, you know, even back then, desperation was a, a pretty powerful mood killer, it seems, and people weren't too keen on McGregor going around and, and, and you know, sniffing at the purse strings of all these uh, all these young women. Anyway. This leaves him with two choices. You've got two choices here. He can head up out back to Scotland over, you know, oversee his ancestral uh, McGregor farmland, the homelands that he's, uh, he's, he's inherited off his dad up, uh, up north. Or he can go, oh, bugger this, I'm off for an adventure. And um, it probably, you're probably going to guess which one he goes for because, yeah, we're talking about him here as a, you know, adventurer and not a farmer. So this point in history, at this point in history, there's a fair bit of unrest in, uh, in Latin America, a bunch of Spanish colonies rising up against Spain in central and, and, nor and the north of South America, so around where modern-day uh, sort of Venezuela is. And this is because uh, the, the Spanish are pretty heavily occupied fighting with Napoleon, and uh, as a result, the, the colonies sort of picking their moment here to, to strike and, and while the iron's hot and, uh, and try to unpick a lot of the Spanish colonial rule, uh, you know, in this part of the world. So in 1811, Venezuela de it declares its independence, and uh, the revolutionary gen general Francisco de Miranda is in charge of this revolutionary effort, trying to, trying to establish this Republic of Venezuela down there in South America. Now, what has this got to do with Gregor McGregor? Well, apparently, and this isn't 100% certain, but apparently, maybe, General Miranda may have met Gregor McGregor 
when they were both in London because McGregor was up in London trying to canvas for allies. Obviously, the, the, the British were at war with the Spaniards as well, and as well as Napoleon there. And uh, and they were look, uh, uh, Miranda was looking for ways to, uh, you know, if anyone would be interested in coming down and, and, and giving the Spaniards what for down there in South America. Now, even if they didn't actually meet, even if McGregor and Miranda didn't meet, McGregor was a huge fan of how much everyone in London loved this General Miranda boat. You know, he's exotic world traveller. He was sticking it to the Spanish. Everyone's a big, big fan of him. So our mate McGregor, he thinks, I'm going to do that. I want to turn into one of these General uh, General uh, Miranda types here. He gets the idea in his head that to cruise down to Venezuela, answer the call, getting good with the general and go back to the soldiering life with this new Venezuelan republic. So as a result, McGregor, he sells all of his Scottish property. And in 1812, he boards a ship bound for the other side of the Atlantic. And, and he sails down there, bro, bu, you know, bold as brass, but ready to go, ready to chuck some punches around. And in 1812, he arrives in Caracas, there in, in modern-day Venezuela. And he finds the city in near total ruins. Oops. Uh, it, it's not as a result of the Spanish, actually. It's uh, because a fortnight before he had arrived, a huge earthquake had basically leveled the city. Now, this wasn't good news for the revolutionary forces there because the Spanish armies, they were sort of closing in. They're getting closer and closer and threatening to recapture it. Obviously not ideal for the uh, the revolutionaries there. And for this reason, because they're getting increasingly desperate, when McGregor rocks up to say, you know, get a you going to Miranda and all the rest of them and ask for a job, the Venezuelan general, he's pleased as punch. He's got this experienced British officer coming out of the woodwork just like that. So an absolute godsend for him. He's, he's absolutely loving life. Um, because think about it, McGregor's you know supposed credentials are excellent. He's a decorated army veteran. And, and of course, don't forget, he fought with the 57th Regiment of Foot, who were sometimes known as the diehards. Doesn't matter that he wasn't there at the same time. Obviously, you know, he just lets people make that link in their minds. Uh, although, actually, he, you know, while he's telling these big stories about who he is and what he does, that sort of stuff, he leaves out the fact that, or not the fact, it's not even a fact, he's tricking me. It's 200 years, it's 200 years later and he's still tricking me. Um, he leaves out the total lie that he's a baronet uh, in this uh, staunchly anti-monarchist republic. He obviously doesn't want to, you know, bring in any order, orders of nobility into into this republic here. So, uh, you know, he obviously know how to. This goes to show that he he knew how to read a room at the very least. Anyway. The Venezuelans, as I, say, as I say, they can't believe their luck. They immediately appoint McGregor as a colonel in the Revolutionary Army, and they put him in charge of a, of a cavalry battalion straight away. So funnily enough, you know, with this big reputation going in to lead these, uh, this cavalry uh, company there, funnily enough, McGregor actually justifies the faith that the revolutionaries put in him. As the first battle that he fought in, he successfully routed an entire Spanish detachment. And this means the result of this positive battle for it, he, he rode that way for a long time. He used it to cover up other areas where he wasn't, you know, maybe perhaps a little bit deficient and where it didn't things didn't go quite so well. Because to be honest, like the rest of his encounters with the, the royalists went from average to poor. Uh, but he managed to con the Venezuelans into thinking he was doing a great job, always reminding them, you know, this of this cavalry company he commanded to begin with. So he's back in his element. He really, it really is fair to say he's back in his element. He's enjoying the prestige and the glamour of his position. And in 1812, it's gone very well for him because he gets married again. He gets married again to another very wealthy lady, a, a, a woman named, and I'm going to give this one a, a, a good go here, Doña Josefa Antonia Andrea Aristigueta y Lovera. And, you know, I understand that there are some interesting naming traditions in Spain. I don't know how they fit them on their driving licenses, to be honest. Anyway, 
He also gets another promotion. This time he's uh, he's been promoted from Colonel to Brigadier General. So you think that everything is going very, very well for our mate. But uh, in truth, uh, it was not, <laughs> however, because in July 1812, or, you know, when, when well, all right for a while, but then if it starts to fall apart, in July 1812, the revolution basically has collapsed. Uh, Gregor McGregor is forced to uh, to flee Venezuela on a British ship to, uh, to Curaçao in order to flee the, uh, you know, the conquering royalist Spanish armies that are, that are you know, putting paid, wiping the floor with the, uh, with the revolutionaries here. And with the Venezuelan revolution in tatters, McGregor, he's in a bit of a loose end. Uh, he gets bored of Curaçao very quickly indeed. Uh, doesn't, you know, he's, he doesn't enjoy that island living for too long. And before long, he's off in search, search of adventure once again. This bloke can't be contained. He needs to be getting up and about and, uh, you know, keeping busy. He hears that there's more revolutionary activity in New Granada, which is west of Venezuela, up towards Panama. And so he decides to go there and, uh, and see what's what. So after dropping his new wife off in Jamaica, he cruises down to meet General Antonio Nariño, the big cheese in New Granada. Now, McGregor turns up and says, G'day, General, how are you going? He name drops Miranda and chats all about his, you know, quote-unquote, achievements in the past. And once again, he cons his way into another high-ranking military commission. This time, he's in charge of 1,200 soldiers and again, he does a competent, if unexciting, job of looking after them. And now, look, I don't want to—I don't want to make it seem like this bloke is completely inept at what he's doing, because he's certainly not. Like, he's definitely punching above his weight when it comes in and conning his way into offices that he didn't deserve. But you know, he's not terrible at his job. He's still a competent military officer. Even with his competence, he's unable to, you know, sort of turn the tide of the of the war. And, and that tide is indeed turning against the revolutionaries in New Granada. And by 1815, uh, McGregor is fighting a hopeless battle against the Spanish royalists in the city of Cartagena, uh, where he and about 5,000 defenders are being blockaded. The port's been blockaded by Spanish warships. They can't, uh, they, they, the Spanish have attempted to attack the city, but it's been defended successfully by these 5,000 blokes. Um, uh, so they blockade the harbour. And now ultimately the revolutionaries, are going to, you know, they know they're going to be starved out eventually. They realise they've got no chance. And so what they do is they arm some gunboats, they load them up with the people that wanted to escape and they actually blast their way through the blockade. And McGregor is commanding one of these gunboats. So he escapes Cartagena successfully. He escapes the war in, uh, in New Granada unscathed. And again, in helping people escape and commanding one of these gunboats, he does a pretty good job. He does a decent enough job. And, and I, I guess I should, I, I'll explain here. The reason I'm telling you about McGregor's, you know, again, relatively unexciting military achievements, it's not to make him seem like he's bad at his job, because he wasn't. He was competent, if, if, if nothing else. He, it just The reason I'm focusing on his, his rather unimpressive and, you know, average career as, as a soldier and as an officer is instead to give you context for how he then went on to present himself later on and talk himself up. You know, for example, right straight afterwards, right after leaving Cartagena, blasting his way through this Spanish blockade, he then sails back to Jamaica and there he meets up with his wife, right, and he starts making inroads with the rich and powerful people who lived there in, in, in Jamaica at the time. He impressed everyone at dinner parties and, you know, all that other sort of stuff by talking a huge game about how he had single-handedly defended Cartagena for as long as possible before you know overseeing the entire evacuation himself and as a result of this like again people are listening to this they're, they're falling from hook line and sinker and one idiot even called, at the time one idiot called him the hannibal of modern carthage which as you know anyone who has listened to episodes 40 and 41 will know is, is not true at all anyway it's not long uh, before he's back in action. Again, you know, he, he enjoys all the hobnobbing and all the all the rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, but uh, he, he does want to get back to the life of high adventure. And uh, this time, he ends up fighting for Simon Bolivar, or Simon Bolivar, I don't know. I'm just going to go for Simon. It's spelt like Simon, and I'm an idiot anglophone, so Simon it is. 
So Bolivar is uh, is sort of in charge of the the effort for Venezuelan independence at this stage. This is 1816 now. And again, very, very happy to have this experienced and storied uh, British military command, this officer come in with a, you know, a rich list of achievements, a, a CV as long as your arm, all that sort of thing. He's, he's going to be an asset to the uh, Venezuelan movement for independence there. And so he gets put in charge of a contingent of soldiers who immediately uh, get a, an absolute hiding from the Spanish and they, and, uh, they need to retreat very, very quickly indeed uh, between cities. Uh, they're actually retreating to a city called Barcelona, which is very confusing. Not the Barcelona in Spain, the Barcelona in, in Latin America there. Now, McGregor has another rare moment of brilliance while he's marching these uh, these troops toward Barcelona. They're marching there for over a month and they're being uh, very quickly pursued by, by these Spaniards. Now, what McGregor does while they're going through this sort of this marshy, boggy kind of area, he realizes that he actually needs to stop and make a stand at one point, and because uh, otherwise the Spaniards will eventually, you know, they're, they're better equipped, they're better fed, and they're going to overtake him. So, what he does while they're halfway through this big marshy, boggy sort of thing, he finds a bit where there's a quite, you know, a bit of a stream, and then he sets up all of his troops. A lot of them, uh, a lot of them are locals uh, in, from the air. A lot of them armed with bows and arrows, and he sets them all up on one side of this marshy stream, right? And then when the Spaniards arrive, you know, all laden down, they get their horses, whatever else, difficult to cross the stream. He set up this this big uh, line of archers to just cut them down one after the other. And so he, he does manage a, a pretty brutal routing of this Spanish force that was chasing them down. And he manages to get all of his troops, or most of his troops at least, safely back to, uh, to Barcelona there. And of course, I mean, this was impressive. We've got to hand it to him. But he talked a huge game about this victory. And he's already, you know, he's already glowing reputation, burnt even brighter. Nice one. <laughs> Gregor, mate, he's done pretty well for himself. And, uh, of course, you know, this this big game he's talking, it, again, he rides that wave. Don't think for one second he doesn't make the most of it. He made sure that everyone and their dog knew about just how well he'd done there. Um, so much so that he actually got a letter of commendation from Bolivar himself saying, and this is what, this is what the letter said, it said... <clears throat> The retreat which you had the honour to conduct is, in my opinion, superior to the conquest of an empire. So big words, big bloody words from Bolivar there. Anyway, not long after this in 1817, the revolutionary armies, they decided on a different tack, right? They've been harrying the Spanish, trying to, you know, trying to fight for the independence at home. And they decide they're going to they're going to try to draw the attention of the Spaniards away from this area in Latin America and decide that instead Spanish controlled Florida would be a good target. They And they decide that McGregor is the man for the job, going to start leading raids and attacks, invasions on uh, on on Floridian soil. So he ends up traveling up to the United States. He travels up to the US, he goes through Pennsylvania, he goes through the Carolinas, he goes through Georgia, and he's going around trying to recruit American citizens, US citizens, to attack Florida, which obviously wasn't part of the United States at the time, it was part of, it was part of Spain. So at this point, we see some classic McGregor behavior. And now, and for the first time, he's actually starting to, to you know, rip people off from their money. They're start, he's starting to part people from their cold, hard cash because he's going around making big promises about all the rewards they'll get if they come and fight and invade Florida, all the land and the riches and all that sort of stuff they get. But he also encourages people to invest and he's fleecing money off them. He's basically selling the titles to land that he's planning to conquer with the money that he raises. So he's selling essentially stocks and shares in Florida itself, promising these investors huge big returns, great big tracts of lands once it's conquered. And he even says, just for good measure, he says, look, if it doesn't work, 100% money back guarantee. I don't know what these turkeys are thinking, giving him his money, but giving them the money, but that is what happens. And he raises a huge, he raises $160,000 at the time, millions and millions of bucks it is. He raises so much money. And of course, these poor people, they didn't know at the time, they're getting fleeced. They're, getting, they're absolutely, they're incinerating their money. After the whole affair was over, they never saw the 
the slightest return on their investment, but that's that's Gregor McGregor for you. He's coming, he's just emptied their wallets. Anyway, once he's stacked up enough cash from these poor old Americans, he's got enough people as well to start the invasion. He's got enough of a backing from a lot of the US people who are keen, again, to you know expand uh, expand their territories and, uh, and, and get amongst it there like that. Once he's got everything ready, he gets a couple of ships together and sails to a place called Amelia Island. It's up in northeast Florida. Uh, it's right at the top of the, uh, I believe they call it the panhandle. I don't, I've never seen a pan or a handle that looks like that, but sure, all right, no worries. So right at the, the northern end of that there. Um, and he, he, he got Amelia Island. It's full of it's full of crooks, full of crooks and criminals. It is, and he decides that this is going to be this is going to be the staging point. This is going to be the launch point from the for the invasion of Florida. But obviously, you've got to capture the uh, capture Amelia Island to begin with. Now, the the Spain, uh, it is property of Spain at the moment. There is a Spanish detachment uh, on on the island, but no worries. After having uh, after having uh, reached the island, he decides that there is going to be he, he's going to land his troops, invade, take over the garrison, and uh, and that'll be that. So, on the 29th of June, 1817, he lands his troops, all 80 of them, and they go up to the Spanish garrison, uh, which were fully armed with cannons and everything in their big fort there, uh, and he tricks them into surrendering because there are only 50 Spanish blokes, and he points at the ships and says, oh, mate, you don't, you don't even want to know how full those are. These 80, oh, they're just, that's just the vanguard. You just wait till you see how many, uh, how many other blokes have got. And the Spaniards go, oh, yeah, look, fair enough. You got us. We're, we'll just, uh, I guess we'll, uh, we'll run up the white flag here. We'll uh, throw in the towel because uh, we've had enough. We don't want our asses handed to us here. So by managing to make his, himself seem much more powerful uh, than he actually was, uh, he, he captures Amelia Island. Brilliant. He, he captures, you know, what a, what a legend. Easy game. Get around him. He's an absolute hero. But rather than use it to further the various fights for independence that are happening down in, in Latin America, what he does instead, bloody twist ending here, he decides, oh, bugger that. I've just captured this perfectly good, perfectly good island for myself. This seems perfect. He, he tries to set up a government on this island and declares himself the head of the new Republic of the Floridas. It's got a flag and everything. It's got a green cross and a white background. Imagine like the English flag, except with a green cross instead of a red one. And he starts going about doing all, you know, doing all government stuff, like trying to tax people and whatever else. And and he, he effectively has tried to just annex this 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 island and turn it into his own little private, you know, sovereign nation. Now you'd be surprised to learn it doesn't last. Doesn't last at all. All the blokes that he's brought with him, they keep saying, "Well, mate, are we going to go and invade Florida or what? You know, what are, what are we even here for?" And he's going, "Oh yeah, yeah no, we'll send out some people." And they, you know, sends out people, and they get killed by the Spanish who are, you know, currently occupying uh, Florida. And they come, oh, they, you know, they, no, they don't come back. So, oh no, worries. We'll we'll get to it, lads. We'll get to it. Just let you know. Let's enjoy our time here, at the the Republic of the Floridas. Um, anyway. He, he eventually loses a fair bit of favour with the troops he's supposed to be commanding because he doesn't pay them. And this is not a good move for any uh, any military leader, of course, not pay. An army marches on its stomach, they, that's what they say, but also on its pocketbook, I think it's fair to say. And he doesn't pay his soldiers. And when this starts to become an issue, he starts to make or basically not quite forge, I guess, just draw Amelia dollars. He starts to make fake money in which he which he uses to pay them. It's obviously worthless, and this doesn't go over too well. And uh, as a result, as you can imagine, the Republic of the Floridas is pretty well, extremely short lived. Uh, just a few months later, what finally ends it is uh, the Spanish have finally begun to rock up to uh, you know to reclaim their their possession of Amelia Island and uh, and as a result uh, you know you can see them on the other side of, of, of you know back on the mainland they're getting their troops together ready to uh, to, to recapture it and uh, 
He's not an idiot, McGregor. He's not an idiot. And he realizes that the jig is up. He decides to leave. So he gets back on board a ship with a, there's a big crowd, apparently. He's getting on the ship. They're booing him and hissing him as he finally, you know, leaves with his tail between his legs. He heads, he heads off to, uh, to Nassau. But uh, no regrets. Leaving the island to, you know, be recaptured by the Spanish. Leaving all the people there behind him. He leaves one of the Americans that he brought with him. He used to be, I think, a, a Philadelphia, a, a, a Pennsylvanian congressman. Uh, he leaves him there in charge of it and says, "Oh, yep, good luck to you, mate. I'll uh, I'll see you on the other side." And uh, gets in his ship and sailed back towards Nassau. But even this, the fact that he abandoned the island basically to the to the Spaniards, even this, it doesn't stop him from when he gets back to Nassau, ordering commemorative medals made to honour his time in Amelia Island. And they are engraved, they're, they're, they're emblazoned with uh, the words Amalia Vini Vidi Vici, which of course means Amelia, I came, I saw, I conquered. And even better than this, Duce Mac Gregorio Libertas Floridarium, or in Latin, which is Latin for Liberty for the Floridas, under the leadership of McGregor. So this bloke really had tickets on himself, you can uh, you can see. And it didn't end there, of course, because he tried to spin the uh, Amelia Island affair as a win, straight up just lying to people and saying that after having captured the island, he then sold it to a French privateer for $50,000, uh, who said he'd defend it from the Spanish, uh, which, long story short, he did not. And um, uh, as a result, back in Nassau, he's living large once again. People seem to eat up his story. And uh, his wife gives birth to a, a young son on the 9th of November, 1817. He was rather inventively named Gregorio. So he's having a great time. He's back in his element. He's, he's loving life once again. And, uh, I mean, at this stage, you're probably wondering if this bloke just kept his head up, you know, that far up his own ass for warmth or what. But I'll tell you this. It gets a lot worse. It gets a lot worse because this whole capture a town and then leave it to the dogs is uh, is it, it ends up being a bit of a trend for our mate McGregor here, because he does have a couple more adventures, a couple more wild adventures in the coming years. In eighteen eighteen, he finally leaves Nassau again on on the hunting for adventure uh, once more. This time he's heading back to Britain. Because he's heard a story about, once again, revolutionaries, uh, Latin American revolutionaries in London trying to gather troops to fight the Spanish, just like um, uh, General Miranda was all those years ago. Now, he wants to lead these troops. He reckons he's the man for the job. And so he heads back with Josefa, his wife, and little Gregorio, his little son there. He heads back to London. And back one, and once he's back there, given his military background and his experience in Latin America, and of course, the endless number of lies he's telling about himself, uh, he's actually given charge of a contingent of British troops that are being sent to help the Venezuelans fight the Spanish. Now, this makes sense on the face of it. We've got a bloke here with, you know, a lot of military experience fighting with the British Army and then a lot of local experience in Latin America fighting with the Venezuelans and whoever else like that. So he, he is a good fit if he's... See, but, I mean, everyone lies on their CV, right? But some people lie just a, a little bit more than others, especially bloody Gregor McGregor. Anyway... He picks up these troops, he picks up the money that he's supposed to use to fund the trip, which he very quickly and very efficiently squanders completely, and uh, he sets sail for New Granada, uh, crossing the Atlantic in early 1819. Now, even at this stage, even early on, his troops, they are unhappy, they're mutinous, they've been promised a big payday after arriving on the other side of the Atlantic, and once they get there, old mate McGregor, uh, as well, you'll remember, he's already frittered away the money, he's got nothing to pay, he's got nothing to pay him with. So as a result, it's all that he and his second command, uh, who's a bloke named William Rafter, it's all they can do to try to keep order amongst the soldiers here. They managed to placate them in the end. They managed to say, now, listen here, boys, it's going to be all right. Uh, they, they promise them with, make all these promises about loot and riches. You know, once they've started to attack the Spanish and, and capture their towns, and they'll have, they'll have their pick of the litter there. And then that's backed up by McGregor's immediate announcement. They're going to set sail straight away and attack a town called Porto Bello. 
Now, they do this. They set off very quickly. They arrive at Portobello on the 9th of April, 1819, and they land a force big enough to overtake the Spanish garrison there without a fight. Now, you know, again, I don't want to take too much away from Gregor McGregor because he has managed to capture a couple of Spanish towns, but what is going on with these Spaniards? Why aren't they fighting? All of a sudden, these British rock up, they land 200 blokes on the beach, and they're just like hands up, red, you know, white flag straight up in the air like this. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, another glorious victory for McGregor. Anyway, you slice it. But rather than continue to fight, rather than continue the fight and march on to Panama City for the glory of the revolution, no, 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 no. McGregor decides instead to hang about in Portobello. And apparently, apparently he spent most of his time there chilling out in the, in the tropical sunshine and designing the trappings of a new chivalric order of his own invention, the Order of the Green Cross, right? And so that's how he's spending his time there instead of doing all the warmongering that he was supposed to do. And his troops, you won't be surprised to learn, are not very happy about this at all. Uh, morale plummets into oblivion. They're not bothering to even bloody patrol the, the town properly or anything like that. And this leads to disaster. They've got these slovenly troops who aren't, there's not a modicum of, of order or discipline there. So on the 30th of April, when the Spanish arrive once again to recapture the town that, that, that they've lost, McGregor was actually sleeping in bed. He was having a sleep in, snoozing away when the fighting started. He hears these gunshots, these rifles going off there like that. Do you know what he does? He grabs his bed, he chucks it out the window, and then jumps out himself, lands on the bed, goes down to the beach, and tries to swim out to his ship. Like an absolute coward, and he nearly dies. He actually nearly drowns. He's dragged out of the water like a, a you know, like a half, like a half-drowned rat, onto his ship. He coughs up his water and they're like that, ready to go. Anyway, all the people on the ship, you know, all, they're all ready to, you know, for him to give the order to bombard the Spanish forces with the ship's canyons and and, and you know, try to save the town from being recaptured from, by the Spaniards. Uh, because Rafter, you know, you remember this bloke, William Rafter, he's two IC. He's there fighting off the Spanish back in the town there, along with all the troops that were left behind on shore. But you know what he does? In what most historians like to uh, like to describe as a real dick move, McGregor turns around his ships and he orders them to weigh anchor and completely abandons Portobello along with all the troops. William Rafter in charge of them, everything like that. They're just left behind on shore. He flees to the high seas. This whole thing is obviously a, a pretty bloody rubbish bit of behaviour from McGregor there, but. Uh, he, he tries to take everyone's mind off it in a, in a pretty interesting way. Um, he uh, he gives all of the people who are on the ship with him, he gives them all medals and awards for, you know, this new chivalric order that had been working on, the Order of the Green Cross, as I said. But, uh, I mean, it's not... Uh, it doesn't really make everyone feel all that much better because, you know, they're thinking of all the people who have died back in, there in the battle and, and Rafter himself, he's captured and later executed when he uh, tried to escape from Spanish custody. So very sad ending for the people left behind in Portobello. But unbelievably... This isn't the last time that he, this is not the last time that Gregor McGregor captured a Spanish town and then abandoned it when the Spanish came to, you know, to save his own skin here. He, he actually runs back the exact same situation immediately afterwards, this time in a town called Rio de la Hacha. So after all this in Portobello, McGregor, he heads to Haiti, where uh, where there are some more British troops. They're waiting for him to, to attack another town on the Spanish, another, you know, Spanish, uh, Spanish town there. And he loads all these troops up into, up into ships and he sails off to capture another town. Now, McGregor, he tries to spin what had happened to Portobello, but the cracks are starting to show because the troops are abandoning him left, right and centre. They're hearing the stories that are going around and, uh, you know, the, the leadership isn't great. And of course, the fact there is the fact that they still haven't been paid, which is not a good idea. So... With the blokes that are still remaining, uh, he sets off uh, towards this town, Rio de la Hacha, and on the, on the 29th of September, 1819, he arrives at the town with 250 troops. He had started with 900, but as I say, hundreds and hundreds had left, or 
been killed. Um, and with these 250 troops, he orders an attack on the town. He says, you blokes, you get off the boats, you go down there, I'll get myself ready. I'll lead this attack personally on Rio de la Hacha. I'm going to come down and I'll lead it personally. So in readiness for the attack, the troops leave the ships. They leave under, under the command uh, of a bloke named Michael Rafter, who is the brother of William Rafter. He had uh, specifically purchased a commission uh, on this trip uh, with McGregor uh, to Rio de la Hacha to try to rescue his brother, who he thought was still a prisoner of the Spanish. So Michael Rafter, he takes the troop ashore. Uh, he takes all the troops ashore. He lines them up, all ready to attack, and they all wait for McGregor to come down and lead them. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait some more for about two hours. And McGregor just doesn't turn up. So he's talk- he's talking a big game. He's just talking, about, you know, he's flapping his gabby. He's a big lobster treatment. He's going, bap, 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 telling them all about how he's going to come and fight the battle. And then he just doesn't. And by this stage, after two hours, the Spanish have actually decided that enough is enough. And that they are going to be the ones who attack after all. So in spite of McGregor not being there to lead, or maybe actually because of McGregor, the fact that McGregor wasn't there to lead them, uh, Rafter is now forced to uh, lead the British against in a counterattack against the Spaniards who are, who are lining up to attack them. And if you believe it, he leads. He, he, it's an absolute success. He routes the Spanish. He, he captures the city single-handedly. Rio de la Hacha falls to the British hands. And... Just like that, another Spanish town has fallen to McGregor. Well, not to McGregor, but of course he's going to take the credit for it, isn't he? Rafter, Rafter has taken this town for the British. Absolutely brilliant. What a great effort from him. And McGregor, who seems to have blundered and tricked his way into another stunning military victory, actually doesn't believe that he's won. He's convinced that the British flag that's flying above the town is a ruse and he won't get off his ship until Rafter's rose out to tell him that everything is okay and and the attack was fine, right? So eventually he comes ashore. He he tries to take charge, but uh, people are very very. Un- I mean, all these troops they've had it. They've, they've had it up to the back teeth. He's, he's, the, the last straw was him not coming on, you know, on shore to actually lead the, the troops personally, like they said they were going to. So they've absolutely had enough of him. Um, he tries to placate them once again. He comes out, makes a big announcement about it all. At the end of which he describes himself. As His Majesty the Inca of New Granada, which doesn't go over too well. I don't know about you, but I reckon at this stage, old mate McGregor is he's a few sandwiches short of a picnic here. He's going around talking talking about himself like that. But uh, once again, you know, this speech doesn't help. Of course it doesn't. I mean, obviously it doesn't help. Morale is horrific. The troops are not fans of McGregor at all. If you think it was bad before, it's even worse now. And discipline now breaks down completely. They're drinking in the streets. They're, yeah, they're partying. They're not having, they're not, they've got no discipline. There's no sense of, of order or urgency or anything, you know, anything remotely approaching, you know, military discipline, as I say. And uh, Michael Rafter actually wrote, wrote about this whole affair later on. And this is what he had to say. He said this, <clears throat> General McGregor displayed so palpable a want of the requisite qualities which should distinguish the commander of such an expedition that universal astonishment prevailed amongst his followers at the reputation he had for some time maintained. In other words, these blokes couldn't bloody believe how big a talk this bloke could talk without walking the smallest of walks. Soldiers, they're going around pissed as chooks. The town is in total disarray. And sooner rather than later, the Spanish are getting ready to recapture the town. Now, eventually, Rafter, he rather sensibly decides that they've got no chance at all against the Spaniards. And so he and a stack of other officers and soldiers, they bugger off all sneaky-like in a captured Spanish ship. Now, this is good news for the officers that are left behind, 
however, because for them, you know, once uh, once McGregor realizes what's gone on here, all of these other mates, of, all of these other officers are buggered off there. What he what he does immediately just promotes all of the officers who stays behind. The promotions all ran, handshakes, orders of the Green Cross, of course, chucked in for good measure. Bloody brilliant, nice one, all you blokes. Congratulations. The bad news, however, is that they've got no chance against the approaching Spanish armies, and I reckon that McGregor knows it. And uh, the reason I think he knew it is because of this, what he does. And uh, remember, we've already seen him be a bit of a mongrel so far, but this one takes the cake, what he does next. As soon as he's finished promoting everyone, handshaking, you know, kissing babies, giving out the orders, the Green Cross, whatever else, as soon as they've, you know, he's finished saying what a great job they're going to do fighting off the Spanish... He heads down to the docks. He heads down to the docks with some of the uh, some of the officers' families. Ostensibly, he's you know escorting them to the ships there, as in readiness for the upcoming battle. Very gentlemanly of him, indeed. You would have thought. Right until he also jumps on a ship and orders them to weigh anchor once again, leaving most of his op- officers and troops ashore just in time for the Spanish to invade. This Spanish attack. Uh, recaptures the city rather effortlessly and all of the British that are left behind, well, uh, yeah, it is uh, not a particularly happy ending for them. That much is certain. So for those keeping count at home, that's a total of three times at Amelia Island in Portobello and now in Rio de la Hacha that McGregor has captured, with a big emphasis on the inverted commas there, uh, a town before more or less abandoning it to save his own skin. And so far, McGregor has largely avoided the consequences of his buffoonery. Three towns abandoned to the Spanish, hundreds of pounds embezzled or lost, you know, made up titles and overblown achievements. Up until now, everyone has kind of fallen for it. But now, in the back half of 1819, things take a huge turn for our mate McGregor here. Because after he sails, after leaving Rio de la Hacha, he sails back to Haiti and he finds that his luck at long last, has finally run out. This time, he's not able to pass off what happened in Rio de la Hacha as bad luck or as, you know, an actual, you know, he's not able to spin it as a victory or find a silver lining or anything else like that. He's not able to pass it off uh, as anything other than an abject failure for which he is catastrophically at fault. And worse yet, he receives a letter telling him that uh, Josefa and Gregorio, his family, they've been evicted from their home in Jamaica after what you know they've heard. After people have heard what uh, what he's been up to, McGregor's been up to, and even worse than that, right? Bolivar, he's he's, he's run out of rope with his uh, with his Venezuelan mates because Bolivar has got wind of what McGregor's been up to, and he threatens. Him. He says if he ever sees him again, if he ever sets foot on the South American mainland once again, he'll hang him. So he is well and truly at the end of his tether. He's run out of all his goodwill at this stage. He's not uh, He's not very high on old times sake with any of, these, any of these blokes. So what did he do? What did he do at this point? The short answer to this is we have absolutely no idea. We have no idea what he did because after October 1819, Gregor McGregor disappeared from history. We don't know where he went or what he did at all. Talk about laying low. This bloke is one of the most outlandish and interesting figures in history, and he just disappeared. But not for long. As you'll discover next week, in April 1820, McGregor resurfaces, he re-emerges, and he begins what becomes known as the Poyet Scheme. He conned millions and millions and millions of pounds out of people by inventing a fictional country in Central America and persuading them to invest or even emigrate there. It's an incredible tale that puts people like, you know, Charles uh, Charles Ponzi and Bernie Madoff, it puts them to shame and you are not going to want to miss it. And that is what we are going to cover next week.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is half of the story of Gregor McGregor. I'm sorry to have split it up over two episodes. I imagine it's a little annoying, but as you can see, we're already well into 40 minutes of episode time here. And there is just so much to get across with this bloke that I thought it was best that we do the whole story rather than try to condense it in there like that. So I'll see you back here next week for more nonsense uh, with Gregor McGregor and the Poi Ace scheme. Very, very interesting tale indeed. As I say, you're not going to want to miss it. Anyway, all the boring, normal housekeeping stuff to close out the show. Halfasshistory.net. You can send me an email just like Cass. Casper Lagrasse did. Uh, I'm so sorry, Casper, that I'm not saying your name correctly. And I've also had emails from a bunch of people. Um, uh, I talked yesterday, or yesterday, I talked last week about the fact that uh, the podcast wasn't available on Google Podcasts. Apparently it is, but it's not available on the Google Play Store. And uh, that is, I, I just can't get it on there because I'm, I'm not North America. So I do apologize to the people who, who only access it there. You'll have to use something else, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, uh, whatever else it is, you'll, you'll, you'll find it there, hopefully. Let me know if there are any issues. But it's always good to hear from people if you've got topic ideas or, you know, suggestions or feedback, I really do love to hear from the listeners. And uh, a very special thank you to uh, the Patreon members. I've got a couple of new patrons who have just signed up recently. And uh, again, it just, it, it floors me. It's just so humbling that people uh, give me money for this stupid, dumb podcast. Anyway, that's that for another week. I'm looking forward to bringing you the the uh, the, the, the story of the Poyer scheme next week that we'll finish the story of McGregor McGregor. But until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, this question, we, we talked about Latin America, obviously, and this is a question adapted uh, from one asked by Reddit historian Newpong, who wants to know, why and when did they stop speaking Latin in Venezuela? 